Um, but there's the the other, I think, genuinely, certainly, I think the best creative response I saw in response to Corbyn's labour was in poetry. Some listeners may remember that there were a couple of volumes of poems for Jeremy Corbyn early on, which were fairly sort of toe-curlingly excruciating, I think, for the large part. Although there was one of them that just repeated the lines, no Blair, over and over again, which is, for in terms of form and content, something I can really get behind. Um, but there was a um, magnificent long poem by um, a writer who is a bit younger than us, I think in his early 30s, uh, Ed Luca, called How Did You Survive January? which really uh, dealt with that sense of grief that Sam, you were talking about. But I think for a lot of reasons, you know, we couldn't dwell on that sense of grief for too long and we couldn't really turn it into a novel in itself. I think partly because the end of such a novel would be too preordained, it would be too politically obvious in its alignment. Um, but it also just takes too long. You know, Ed's poem I think was written, I mean, the title, How Did You Survive January implies sort of February or March. 2020, which of course is very brief interregnum between mourning the election result and the pandemic coming. Uh, so maybe there's something to be said about how poetry and, and even film, because they're things that can be made and issued more quickly, uh, were more capable of capturing a lot of the emotions specifically around the Corbyn project, mm -hmm. rather than the state of Britain it was trying to address. Uh, poetry and film could capture that better because they don't have the same production lags that literature has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I was writing Eminent Domain, I was quite, um, I was quite involved in a lot of the uh, stuff that was going on around companies. I mean, it's more utopian sort of um, elements and so on. Um, but I think like that novel got quite a bleak um, end. And um, I think that possibly, even though it was written and finished before the Corbyn project of um, ran aground, yes, it was. Um, then I still think that like you know, possibly there was an anticipation on my part that things would go quite um, badly wrong in some ways, though I didn't feel it on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I suppose perhaps it's just underlying pessimism, knowing what you do once you get to a certain age about the power of the British state to derail anything which is not in its interests quite comprehensively or whatever. But like in, in terms of, because I'm interested in counterfactuals uh, and speculative stuff, I mean, I think the thing is that like, you know, you imagine the sort of, um, or they study the sort of counterfactual Corbyn wins, say wins in 2017, or they win in 2019, they don't take whatever position. Then, then I mean, that unfortunately then immediately leads, leads you on to the, well, they just assassinate him sort of scenario or something like that anyway. So, so your brain runs up against the kind of unfortunate impasse, which is just like, um, you know, the monolithic uh, power of the British state and its ruthlessness means that even if you can get somebody into office, you know, then the, the fight begins there, you know, that's when the really the big guns come out or whatever. So I think finding those, I think there's something like a counterfactual sort of a novel around Corbyn getting in there, which has been done before. Um, and I've forgotten the name, or a very British coup, for instance. But something like that, I think, is interesting because, again, you can use it to expose structural elements of the British state and uh, the ways in which they they are and would be employed as a way of sort of arming yourself against the situation in the future. In some ways, I mean, prefiguratively imagining it. In some ways, just a quick note on a very British coup. I did actually watch it in the aftermath of oh. the defeat, <laughs> uh, which is a really bad time to watch it. But I, the, I, I watched the TV adaptation. I didn't read the novel. And I, I only got two thirds of the way through it, the three part series, and I couldn't watch the third part because mm. it just made me too angry. And one reason why it made me too angry is because obviously it speculates on like a left wing Labour leader actually taking power. 
um, Harry Perkins, I think his name is. And it shows him being destroyed by the British state. It doesn't really give you too much on the internal Labour Party machinations. Mm. There's some some of that, but there's not loads. And of course, the reason it made me angry was because I thought, well, we we didn't take power. We came reasonably close. It looked in mm. 2017 like we probably could. But, you know, what we got from the state and from the media and from the from within the Labour Party was far, far worse than what Perkins gets in 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 the series. Um, so I found it I found it quite a hard watch like for that for that reason yeah i think it's um sorry sam i'm just going to jump in and say one more thing here which is i think once being as somebody who grew up in the 80s and saw some of the um stuff that went on there sort of firsthand from the perspective of being sort of a t- working class teenage a boy or whatever um i think what's been particularly interesting with the, the corbynite stuff um or the post corbyn stuff is the extent to which the pathology of it really the extent to which like it's the illegitimacy of any position left of centre, as regards its absolute and to some extent, you know, desire to just eradicate us, I suppose. I mean, not, not like literally liquidate us, although, um, but like just the sort of the total impermissibility now of um, anything which might ask for uh, something which isn't the most um, sort of didactic, market-oriented form of neoliberalism, I think has reached a sort of a, is reaching a pathological sort of peak. And so we think that, yeah, I mean, you know, we were treated more cruelly even than the worst sort of fictional um, depiction of these things. It's probably right, you know, because I think that the imagination has moved on to such a way now that the right and the centre have become pathological, uh, I think. I'm sorry to say that, but um, I think they have. I think it's really interesting to consider as well that, you know, I I, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything other people haven't said by saying that it's... Um, it's very conspicuous the extent to which uh, the the right have pivoted so quickly to kind of culture war content and away from any kind of material or structural argument um, for their project. It's more just a cultural argument against an imagined opposing project. And, And that's been much remarked upon and much commented upon. But what I think hasn't been talked about as much is that if you're gonna move everything onto the plane of the culture war then there are questions for culture itself there are questions for art itself and so although we imagine culture wars playing out as being about culture and like they play out online and you know everyone has an argument about this or that I think they're very real ramifications for culture itself. And I think when you couple that with some of the work that the right wing project at the moment is doing around universities, around education, I make no bones about the fact that I imagine it being um, a, a somewhat more challenging artistic and cultural landscape. And so I think it's going to be, it's also going to be interesting to see how novelists adapt to that because it was already to be totally honest with you when I was working on Perfidious Albion I I don't know if you felt the same thing Cole but um, there were more than one sort of British literary think piece about how you know fiction shouldn't really be too political or like you know the political novel always ended up being a polemic or really you know the role of fiction was to be subtle which always seemed to me to be like a, a, a kind of covert way of suppressing um, artistic anger 
and uh, you know kind of overt political expression through the arts and so that in a way the combination of those two things now to me makes a more more challenging literary and artistic landscape and it, it feels to me like um artists are going to have to be quite brave actually and they're going to have to risk ridicule and they're going to have to risk um like a really predictable critical response and they're going to have to risk their work being co-opted into um wider cultural and political arguments in ways that um they're perhaps not up for 